0: Be inspired to love life, to achieve extraordinary feats and to change the world around you for the better. Welcome to Love Your Life, Tell Your Story by Kathleen Marriott. Love Your Life, Tell Your Story. If you haven't listened to Cole Mabry's first story, go back and have a listen. It recounts the extraordinary love a mother has for her son and the extreme lengths you'll go to for love. Here we delve deeper into the life of Cole Mabry's grandmother. So, Dad, we're talking about your grandmother, we're talking about Nana. So tell me a little bit more about her. I'm really interested to know, and we're really interested to know,
1: who was she? She had an interesting life insofar as she was made pregnant when she was 17. And she had my Uncle Ern at that time. She lived in Maitland at that time, and then okay. later on, she married an Irishman called Thomas Farr.
0: Did, did just tell me, did you ever know who Uncle Ern's father was?
1: No, Uncle Uncle Ern. I knew Uncle Ern very, very well, but he was an adult when I was only a child, only a five, four or five year old, and uh, he used to um, like like drinking and going up to the Denman Hotel in Western, and coming home and uh, running around with the kids and playing with them and everything. We thought he was fantastic. Oh, bet. But, but I could see my mother, his half-sister, yes. looking askance at him, you know. Sort yes, of to behave
0: and, to behave and <laughs> not influence the kids. Yes. And it must have been really hard for great-grandmother to be in those times a single mother at 17 to have a child I can't imagine how she must have supported herself back then, let alone be in the country town with a child on her
1: own. And I think that's why she was so happy to marry a 33-year-old. Yes. Uh, at, at 18 to marry him and go with him to, uh, to the wilds of of Australia at the time or New South Wales. In fact, they were working on Gunniganoo Station, which is up near Tamworth, when she fell pregnant the next time, and that was
0: with Victor Farr.
1: Yeah, Victor. On Victor Farr's birth certificate, they have put down that she will be nineteen. They said the uh, the form asked for the age of the mother, and the clerk had written nineteen tomorrow.
0: Nineteen tomorrow. That so, she would be nineteen tomorrow. So
1: she was actually telling them, I'll be 19 tomorrow. So she must have had a very outgoing sort of nature. Yeah. And, that and, pr- and proud that she would be 19. And proud. And a mother as well. And mm. when her son went and joined the army in August of 1914, he was one of the first. His number was 828. So that shows you. 828. Yeah, he was the 828th of the Australians who had joined up into the to go to the First World War oh my. and he went to Egypt and had a wonderful time we had nice photographs that came back from Egypt showing them enjoying themselves riding a beautiful camels, young man riding camels and so on and then they attacked at Gallipoli and if you follow the history of being the royal historian shall I say or the official Australian historian The landing was no great fun. And I've been there to to Turkey, to Gallipoli, and I've been into Shrapnel Valley where Victor Emmanuel Farr was last seen and uh, the soldier who claimed at the trial, they had to have a a, um, hearing to ensure that he was dead. And he said um, that was the last I saw of him, but how anyone could know, what was going on on the first day is beyond me. So because it's just
0: rugged, it was cliff, chaos cl- rugged, rugged cliffs, rocks and
1: bushland. Yes, and there was a big valley called Shrapnel Valley. Now it wasn't called that for fun. No. It was full of shrapnel. So he was obviously killed. And the Turks hidden in, in the rocks. Yes.
0: But they were defending their own country. Of too, course. Which, of course. This is war and Mm. they were under attack. So here is great-grandmother Mary Thompson Farr at the time and she was searching for her son and defending her rights as a mother and you, you met her and you were a child sitting on her lap and how did you... How did you know her? What was in your heart when you knew her?
1: Oh, I loved her. She was a very nice. A fairly small woman, but from what I remember, and remember I was only uh, about eight when she died, mm. but I remember my parents used to tell the story about me cuddling into her and saying to her, Oh, you little black bugger, I love you, I love you. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. black bugger. Because she wore black.
0: Yes, it wasn't because of any um, racial thing you were saying, it was because she wore black.
1: Yes, she wore it in memory
0: of Victor Emmanuel. For the black. whole of her life. For the
1: whole of her life after, after 1915. She received a telegram to say that he'd been wounded and was in a hospital but is doing well which it was a ploy, I think, because many soldiers got that, soldiers' um, relatives got that ploy to keep them from asking too many questions because over 2,000 soldiers were killed on that first day and for a place like Australia who had never had a real war to have those sort of losses was too fearful to the hierarchy and so consequently they tried to cover it up by telling lies and by saying things like, he's in the hospital and he's wounded, hoping that they would fix that up later on. But she, like a, a Scotch terrier, took to them and kept on demanding more information. Why can't you tell me where my son is? And eventually her, she played her trump card. She said, his kit bag is in Egypt. I know he's, I know he's dead. Where is he? You've got to tell me.
0: And by this stage, she's the mother of four children. She had another two children to Michael Drummond. And she's, and so she's got Ern, Victor, and your mother and her sister May. And so she's now decided to take on the Australian government and fight them for the... Remains or the knowledge of her son's life or death.
1: Yes, and everything that she did, she went to the local recruiting officer, she went to the Minister for Defence, and all of them ended up on the desk of the officer in charge base records in Melbourne and it was handled by him as it had to be in those days when they're trying to keep a uh, a lie going about the numbers who were being killed. Yeah. You have to have one man responsible so that you can keep the, keep it undercover. And they kept it undercover for over a year and at the end of the year, they finally admitted that he was dead and the priest from Morissette brought the information to her.
0: And you can only imagine, this is a woman who has faced, you know, being a single mother in those times, you know, pre World War One, she would have been fierce. She's, she knew how to stand up for herself. She knew how to navigate the world. She would have been a person who has per- persevered and by her writings in her letters she was an intelligent individual and she knew how to articulate her feelings.
1: Yes, there's no doubt about that. But it also caused a lot of trouble in their marriage. For example, one letter that I've seen... With Michael Drummond. With Michael Drummond. And one letter that I've seen to the officer in charge, Base Records, she said, please send the letters care of the post office in the Blue Mountains. I'm staying with a friend and I don't want my uh, my position known.
0: So they because this was obviously not his son so he may not have had the same feelings about her pursuits of um the knowledge of of her son that she had by the sound of that
1: yes uh, it would have caused intense friction inside the the family group i'm sure Um, my mother didn't talk about it but when i asked her when i started researching and finding all the letters and getting them from the from the army, she said to me, oh, I don't remember much about that, and I'm not sure whether she was being fully truthful or not.
0: So it wasn't something of family pride to have her brother uh, killed in Gallipoli or as a war hero at that time?
1: I think it was more the fact that it took so long, a year of constant stress and worry, and waiting on letters and then dissecting those letters and then writing the reply and analysing it, and so it went on.
0: So the fierceness of her mother, or do you think that part of the, I suppose, sadness and the grief of her mother wearing black may have kept the story quiet?
1: I would think that was a, a statement of fact. I... I have lost my son. I gave my son for Australia's benefits in the war, and look how they treated me. They wouldn't tell me that uh, that he'd been killed.
0: such a sad story that is. that he didn't come home even in death as a war hero, as we've now revere this experience of Gallipoli, and we now have a a war. Heroes that we do review Gallipoli, and I'm very proud that his name is on the Anzac Bridge that we have here in Newcastle, and that his name is on the wall at Gallipoli in in honour of this fallen sons that were lost. But I never heard the story until you told it, and which was in my adulthood, I didn't know about Victor Farr. So. It's a very sad story and I'm very pleased it's not lost. So one that is a love life story and obviously one that's in your heart and one to love your grandmother for being fierce and being a loved mother of a loved son and a loved grandmother.
1: She was a very big part of my early days.
0: One that may have given you your fierceness and perseverance.
1: Oh, I hope so.
0: Yes. Are you from a company that wants to connect with thought leaders from across the globe? Featured on the Love Your Life, Tell Your Story podcast? Email Kathleen at KathleenMariott.com.au. What year was it that Halley's Comet came across our skies, Dad?
1: 1986 and 87, and it has a 75 or 76 year uh, turnaround. It actually comes in sucked in by the gravitational pull of the Sun from the far outflung parts of the uh, of the solar system in what they call the Oort Cloud. The Oort Cloud is the remnants of leftover pieces of material that made up all the planets and the Sun and the whole lot that exists in our solar system. And it breaks away from the Oort Cloud and spirals down towards the Sun, the only point of uh, high gravitational pull in the solar system, screams around the Sun because it's going faster and faster and faster and it ends up it's travelling at rates of 400 meters per second as it goes around the Sun. At the same time it's being heated by the Sun and it's often called dirty snowballs and Halley's Comet is one of those things. It contains lots of ice and that ice boils off and leaves behind a tail as it goes round the sun, illuminated by the sun. The tail points out in the opposite direction to its travel when it's coming in towards the sun and it gives a spectacular sight, particularly in 1910 when it came very close to Earth, so it could be easily seen by anyone. My father used to boast quite a lot about the fact of how he'd seen Halley's comet. He'd gone out on the backyard to have a pee and saw this blazing comet in the sky, and came back in and told his parents. And how he how
0: old was he when that happened?
1: Eight, eight years of age. Eight. Okay. And. So he was very interested in that and he told me at great length about it. I was his firstborn son and so it was one of his stories of childhood for him. And do you know
0: what year, well obviously you would know what year that that was but can you tell us what year that was?
1: 1910.
0: 1910, I
1: guess. So the next time was 1986 and 87 and I decided, I'd show the people of Newcastle, I was the president of the Astronomical Society at the time, I would show the people of Newcastle this comet that my father had talked so so much about. And in this apparition, the 86 one, it was a long way away and it was nowhere near as powerful as it was the time my father had seen it. And so I showed it to him. I took a telescope up to, uh, to Weston where he lived and I set it up for him. How old, thought,
0: how old was Grandfather in 1986? Well,
1: he would have been 84. Okay. And I showed it to him and he said, oh, nowhere near as good as it. I mean, I <laughs> <sort>
0: of,
1: like, <laughs> Not your fault, <laughs> <Yeah>. Dad. <laughs> you, you can't run a thing like this. <laughs> <laughs> and he blamed it on me. But anyway, I, I invited people to come up and have a look at it and they did from uh, Obelisk Hill and we looked at it. And then I thought, a lot of people like this. And so I advertised for people who had seen it in 1910 and who were prepared to see it again in 1986. And I got 20-odd people, so I thought, this is is great. And I have a wonderful photograph of them posing for it. And I thought it would be a good thing to have children as well who are seeing it this time in 1986 and we'll possibly see it again in 2061. And so I gathered them to get the two, and I made them all up into a, um, a memory, uh, how can I say a, um, a memory case? and we buried that underneath a plaque that we put up on Obelisk Hill with the permission of the council, of course. and it's there up, up there now. And at the moment, that comet is right out in the Oort cloud, travelling hardly at all. It's practically stationary. So
0: you set up a, a telescope up on the obelisk in Newcastle, New South Wales, Australia. And this is a pinnacle point of Newcastle with a, a white, white obulus that yes. sits up there. So it's a lovely viewing point of Newcastle that sits on top of the hill that people visit there is a spot there that's very nice viewing that people can go and sit and have a look out at the lovely views and see the ocean and it's across the road from a beautiful park called King Edward Park and see the streets of Newcastle and the lovely vista and there is where you set your telescope up and people came from everywhere didn't they I remember this quite well my grandfather your father was alive and my brother your son and my daughter was involved she was a young child at the time and certainly they are part of this time capsule that you have buried there with a plaque on top and it's a lovely thing that is there but you also had telescope set up. For how long did you have the telescope set up there?
1: Oh, round about um, three or four weeks on and off. Mm -hmm. But the the biggest one, we had 2,000 people go to um, Fort Scratchley and we showed it to people from there. Can
0: you explain to us Fort Scratchley so people can get a vision of what Fort Scratchley is?
1: Well, Fort Scratchley was the basis uh, armament of Newcastle. It's a hill at that That looks like a fortress and of course it had big guns up there and uh, ammunition bunkers and things like that. And it was a large area and the the weirdest thing was uh, mothers showing their little babies and the babies were practically fast asleep because (laughs) when we were seeing the comet it was about 3 o'clock in the morning. And they'd be shaking the baby, saying, look at it, look at it, because
0: you might get to see it. And... <laughs> so so when you and say a few you. people turned up, Dad, thousands of thousands. people turned up. Mm. So you're being very modest when you say, you know, a few people turned up at this hill, thousands of people turned up. And so over the three-week period, thousands and thousands of people came to look through your telescopes to see Halley's Comet. So it was quite a full-time job for you to help people view Halley's Comets through your telescope set up at Fort Scratchley, which overlooks the ocean, beautiful ocean, and you assisted thousands of people view Halley's Comet, including babies, including the populace of Newcastle who wished to see this comet come through in 1986 And from there people were able to see the stars sometimes for the first time
1: Yes, it was a lovely time and <laughs> thoroughly exciting and whatever And also nerve-wracking when you think about it yeah. Like one lady fell off the top of the, um, the munition holding areas up at um, Fort Scratchley and broke her arm And somehow I got the blame for that <laughs> I didn't tell her to go up there and fall off So, you know, that, they were the sort of things that were going on all the time
0: So, well, when they had that many people gathering in, I suppose, an unplanned way Because you could not foresee what would actually happen When you just put a few telescopes around without planning this interest in Halley's Comets tail spinning across the sky so tell me how did it feel for you to um, have this idea of just putting an ad in the paper and saying here I'm going to put my telescope up and people would turn up that way
1: I had a lot of friends helping me too and yeah. also operating the telescopes it was, I was surprised at the, um, at the reaction and you know the funniest thing that I struck was all of the people who had seen it in 1910 spoke in childish language as if they were children again when they were were recounting the story they'd say daddy set it up set up and said come out and sit here on this i've got these chairs out there and you can all sit in the chairs and watch the comet
0: oh how interesting so it brought back the beautiful childhood memories and it really took them back to a really great experience for when they were children
1: yes and some of them were amazing like mr tressida he was a champion bike rider and one time it was in the depression and just before the first world war and he found out that there was money to be had in melbourne but he had no way of getting there he couldn't afford the train fare so with a couple of uh, tyres and tubes over his shoulder, he rode to Melbourne and went in the race and won 100 pounds at it and rode back to Newcastle. You know, I thought, that's magnificent to actually go that far from here to Melbourne, nearly a 1,000 kilometres, riding on a pushbike and sleeping out at night on the way. And another man was a schoolteacher, a famous school teacher here in Newcastle, And he said, "Dad had arranged that all for us." And we went out and we sat round in an old quarry, and we watched the the comet as it came across. And some of them thought that the comet was going to burn up the earth because they they'd had analysed its tail and it had cyanide in its tail. So uh, one lady from up New England. She said their neighbour, who were very religious, had all the kids out praying, kneeling down while the tail of the comet passed over Earth uh, so that they would go to heaven straight to
0: heaven. <laughs> So it brought out their stories from pre-war and it also brought out their superstitions from back then before science let them know that this was a phenomenon that had happened for, obviously, a millennium. And it wasn't a scary thing to um, worry about. No, that's right So for you it was a magical event to watch And something that would only happen once in your lifetime And yet it happened twice in your father's lifetime
1: One of my favourites was Mr Treasure, Frank Treasure And he ended up wanting to get into the First World War But was too young and they knocked him back Uh, In the Second World War he went down and volunteered And they said, no, you're too old for the Second World War (laughs) But then they said, "Look, we are making a um, a body recovery unit, and we're looking for a senior man to to run that who can keep the the younger men under control, so to speak, and uh, and do a good job." So he became a captain, and he went through Bergenville, digging up the dead bodies that had been hastily buried there and packing them up correctly into nice uh, caskets. And bringing them back to Australia for burial here at Sandgate in the uh, in the Honoured uh, Warriors section.
0: And these are the the stories that are in the time capsule, Dave. Yes. So one day when Halley's Comet comes again, these people's stories are in the time capsule. Yes. How fascinating. And and is who is responsible for this time capsule to be opened?
1: The children who see it for the first time. There's something like twenty children. Including my granddaughter, they will hopefully open it. But
0: it's so. Not. Your granddaughter is my daughter. Yes. Okay. So she will be what age do you think when?
1: Oh, she'll be getting into her 80s.
0: 80s when Halley's comet comes around again. And so Newcastle, is anybody in the council aware of the time capsule?
1: No, but it's it's on it and uh, so consequently so many people know about it that it will be done
0: And these people, all of their names are obviously on the plaque I've seen the plaque and these people's stories are inside the time capsule and they, when the time capsule is opened, literally like butterflies their stories will come, uh, come alive again
1: And photographs of Newcastle and I hope that they will pack the time capsule again with photos of Newcastle at that time And news stories 2061 and news stories And it will go on to the next one
0: Oh how wonderful And so this is a lovely thing that you did then So people who saw it in 1910 People who saw it in 1986 And then people who will see it in the next comment Will be able to keep that capsule going and intact For the next do you know the year that it will be the next time? No, but
1: it'd be 76 attached to We just list, have so to keep
0: the math going. <laughs> 3031
1: three or something like
0: yeah. that. Yeah. So how wonderful. So what a wonderful thing you have done because your dad loved Haley's Comet when he was eight and then he saw it again with you. So you had that experience with you. You created this phenomenon for Newcastle and I'm sorry for the lady who broke her arm. That wasn't your fault, but you did a lovely thing for newcastle to share your love of the stars with newcastle and your love of life and thank you for telling your story and to also to add to the obelisk and this beautiful time that you've given to newcastle wonderful thank you for loving your life and thank you for telling your story so fabulous This is only part of our story. To hear the rest, leap forward to the next podcast and give us five stars wherever you listen. Love Your Life, Tell Your Story by Kathleen Marriott.